You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Swamp 24-7 podcast. I'm Thomas Goldcamp, joined here by Blake Alderman. Blake, I know it's been a minute since our last podcast. A lot's happened since then. Florida wrapped up spring football practice, and then obviously the basketball team competed in the NCAA tournament. Unfortunately for Florida fans, we're not talking about playing past the first weekend. That's kind of uh, developed into a little bit of a trend under Mike White here, Blake. It actually has. I looked it up. I think, what is this, the last two years? Or, well, considering the one last, year. Last three appearances. The, the, last, the last three appearances that Florida's been bounced. What was it, in the, in the, in the round. round of 32? So, you know, it is a trend um, to go along with the up-and-down trend that is Mike White and the Florida Gators. Like, what's your sense of uh, kind of how fans have taken things? I know <laughs> it, it, it gets easy, I think, reading Swamp 24-7's message boards and, and kind of the diehard fans uh, to feel like, you know, fans are completely over Mike White. It, what's your sense? I know down there in Lakeland, you have a lot of Florida fans around. You got a lot of buddies over there. What's your sense of where people think kind of the, the program's headed under Mike White? Are they, are they stalled out, I guess? You know, I, I think really, you know, apathy has set in. And I think that it set in before, you know, even really this season got heated up. I, I think that fans have, have, I mean, they've had Mike White on the hot seat. I mean, you read all the, you know, I mean, fans obviously even coming out of there now, if you look on social media, I mean, they're ready to move on from Mike White. Um, you know, I, I think overall, you know, I, I think next year is going to be an interesting one because, you know, I, I say that I thought apathy sat in or started to set in before this season. You know, I don't think next, next season is going to be any better. You know, I think it could be worse. You know, could, it, could the, you know, fire Mike White crowd continue to grow? I think it will. So, you know, I, I think at this point, Florida's in a sticky situation. You know, you either have a point where you move on and you, you have to go through all the rebuilding that a you know, coaching staff does, you know, players move on, you know, all those things that can happen during a season. Or do you go through the season, you know, next year with Mike White and, you know, just kind of have your fan base start to, I guess, not care, you know, and I, that's, that's, it seems like a lose-lose either way for Florida. You know, sure, could a new coach come in and, and you know, kind of change the trend? Could it put Florida back on the map? Sure, you know, but at this point, it doesn't seem like Florida's in a very good spot. Well, and I don't think he's going anywhere, at least not unless Mike White decides to look for a job elsewhere. I don't think that Scott Strickland's going to make that move. And I mean, I could be wrong, but that would, I think, would be very surprising to most people around the program. I think, Blake, apathy is a good, good thing to talk about because I think when you're talking major college sports and recruiting and the big part that recruiting plays into it, um, apathy does have an impact on that. And I, don't, I think Mike White being a good recruiter, I think he's less likely to be impacted by that than maybe like a Dan Mullen. But I think when you talk about apathy, I think one of the reasons it started to set in is because you have developed this kind of pattern. And, and I say pattern, I think it's the way that Florida's seasons have unfolded under Mike White have all looked very similar. Even within games, things look kind of similar. You know, you have those long scoring droughts. You have questionable decision making. You know, you go back to uh, even the Virginia Tech game, the first game in the NCAA tournament. You know, there, there were a couple just really head-scratching decisions. You know, Noah Locks under the basket trying to inbound the ball, and, you know, nobody calls timeout. I mean, that's, that's a coaching issue where all of a sudden you let Virginia Tech get a quick bucket. 
They're back in the game. Anthony DeRuji misses a couple free throws. All of a sudden, you're in overtime in a game that you were leading pretty steadily and probably should have been able to, you know, kind of close out and take care of business. Same thing against Oral Roberts. I mean, Florida's up, you know, fairly comfortably, seems to be in charge of the game. And then all of a sudden, you know, 10 minutes left or so, they start to take the air out of the ball, you know, where they're just playing, you know, they slow it down and it's not until 10 seconds, seven seconds left on the shot clock where they finally start to be aggressive. That kind of thing has been consistent. I mean, even if you go back to the one year where Florida was really successful under Mike White and reached the Elite Eight, if you go back to that Wisconsin game and, and shout out to uh, the Alligators River Wells, he, I thought he had a really good comment uh, or column pointing this out. Even in Mike White's best year, that was still a problem because Florida was up 12 points in that Wisconsin game and all of a sudden they try to take the air out of the ball. Uh, you know, they kind of let Wisconsin back into it and all of a sudden you need a miracle from Chris Chioza to advance. So this is not a new phenomenon and I think we've talked about it on this show repeatedly the problem with Mike White's teams are they are consistently inconsistent and you know I I understand that the back and forth argument from people that are in Mike White's camp you know if you talk to a Scott Strickland if you talk to you know the the guys that write for the floridagators.com website covering the team they're not wrong in that Mike White has had Florida competitive I mean Florida's been in the big dance really five of the six years that he's been around. And that's, that's not something to sneeze at. Having said that, at some point, you've got to show signs of breaking through. And, and where I get back to with Mike White and kind of to your point, next year doesn't necessarily look very good, Blake. And I think not having a set system that Mike White has recruited to over the last six years is hurt. You know, you talk about Andrew Demhard and, and Kerry Blackshear and kind of playing really slow last year. Then you try to play fast this year. And, and obviously, Blake, they had some hardships losing Keontae Johnson and all that. But my problem with, with this is, and, and I think you would agree, where's the sign that this is going to change at some point? And, and for me right now with Mike White, that's kind of what I can't find. You know, I, I don't know what signs there are. You know, there doesn't seem to be any. You know, I think that the way this is moving is that, you know, with Florida, the talent that they're bringing back next year, I don't think expectations are high, even if – there wasn't the apathy, even if there wasn't, you know, wanting to get Mike White out of there. All those things, you know, if we throw those out the window, I still think that Florida would struggle next season anyways. And when you combine all those inconsistencies, you combine just, you know, everything that has been going on in the program, you know, I, I think that it's, it's a situation to where I think Florida could be absolutely looking for a new basketball coach after the season just because, you know, those expectations, if they exceed them, you know, I – I, I guess even if they did ex- exceed those expectations, what is enough to where you could feel comfortable in letting Mike White continue to be at Florida? And I, I don't know what that would be, man. I mean, it's, it's a pretty, pretty high price there for me. Well, I, and I think, you know, it's, it's going to be interesting because Mike White does have a big buyout. He's got $1.75 million per year left on his contract, and he's got four years. You're looking at a $7 million buyout if you fire him this year. Again, I, I don't think that that's going to happen. I just can't see that being the route that Florida goes, given the, you know, the financial implications of COVID-19 and all that. I think he's going to get another year. I think the problem for me is that you look at Trey Mann departing for the NBA draft. You look at Keontae Johnson. We're not sure if he's going to play again. Even if he does, does he decide he wants to do that at Florida or is he going to do it elsewhere? Um, I go back to development has been a consistent issue for Mike White. You know, how many players have really developed under Mike White? Trey Mann, certainly. Deontay Johnson, I think you can make a positive argument for. But, I mean, look at Andrew Nemhard and how he's thrived at Gonzaga, you know, since transferring. Uh, there's, there's just been a lot of guys that haven't developed. And I think one of those guys you can point to is a guy that, you know, if you had said two years ago he's going to be a junior on your team, you probably would have said something's wrong. 
Uh, and that's Scotty Lewis, you know, a former five-star prospect with all the tools in the world from an athletic standpoint, but just hasn't really developed from a basketball standpoint. And so all of a sudden you look at next year's team, what are you going to have back? I mean, you'll have a shooter in Noah Locke, but Noah Locke really hasn't developed enough game to be able to consistently create unless it's just, um, you know, he hasn't been able to consistently create off the dribble. So you've got Anthony DeRuji, you've got, you know, maybe Colin Castleton, but to me, I don't see, I don't see signs that you get better when you lose a player like Trey Mann. And, and obviously, Kawasi Reeves is going to be really good as, a, as an incoming freshman. But Florida may have a couple transfers out, too. I think that's safe to say at this point. I mean, that's just kind of the way college basketball goes. And so all of a sudden, if you're Mike White coming into a season where you know all of a sudden you are on the hot seat, I don't, I don't think there's any question about that. I know that his, his overall record is pretty good when you stack it up to other coaches in Florida basketball history. But the bar is different now for Mike White than it was for a lot of Absolutely. those coaches. I mean, Billy Donovan raised the bar. And I think for me, when you go to evaluating Mike White, there's a lot of, I don't know if cognitive dissonance is the right word, but a lot of people try to point to that NCAA tournament record. They try to point to, you know, the SEC winning percentage, that kind of thing. I think what gets lost in that for me is that at least the NCAA tournament is a very, very small sample size. Anything can happen in a given game. And I, and I actually give Mike White a lot of credit or never having a first round exit from the tournament. That's, that's harder to do than people realize. Having said that, that is a small sample size. And I think so when you're evaluating a coach, look at the bigger sample size, look at things that are consistent from year to year. And when you do that, for me, that's conference play. And Florida has only been competitive for an SEC title in one year under Mike White. And that was his second year with primarily a team that was led by Billy Donovan recruits, Chris Chioza, Devin Robinson. So until Mike White is able to put together a cohesive version of his team what he's wants his program to look like it's really hard for me to buy in and I think fans because it's now six years in I think like you said apathy setting in I don't know where you go from here if you're Florida in terms of fixing that you know I think a couple years back when we were talking about this kind of the same similar issues you know Florida having offensive struggles not being able to develop big men was kind of the big question then and what did Florida do they went out and hired uh, Pinkins, you know, the, the assistant coach to try to help develop the bigs. I think the, the development of the bigs has gotten a little bit better, but he hasn't been your Larry Shiat. You know, he hasn't been the Larry Shiat to your Billy Donovan. And I think if Mike White is going to work, he has got to have a veteran guy that comes in as, as an assistant coach and really offers some fruitful feedback to where Mike White can suddenly work on those things that aren't working for his program. And Blake, to that point, Florida may have the opportunity to do that this offseason. You know, right now, uh, Coach Mincy, Jordan Mincy, is in the running for the Jacksonville job. From what I've heard, it sounds pretty likely that if he wants that job, he'll be able to take it. Now, they're, they're negotiating some things as far as commitment to the basketball program and all that. Uh, but, Blake, I mean, is, that, is it feasible in your mind that one assistant coach could make the difference for Mike White, or is that kind of pie in the sky, you know, reaching to find ways to just cling to this Mike White idea? You know, I think it's clinging to Mike White. I think that at this point, you know, could someone come in that's a veteran type of coach that could be there, you know, kind of to, you know, lean on and get some insight? You know, sure, I guess. But I just think at this point, I just think you've seen enough. You know, I just think that you've seen enough of what it is. You know, I think that even if you move in different guys, you know, assistant coaches here and there, I think Mike White is still getting, you know, being the head coach, being the guy in charge of that program, I, I just think that it's the point where, it's just too hard to rely on him anymore. You know, if you get a new assistant coach in there, could that change things? Could he have someone there to, you know, kind of talk him out of the, you know, the in-game head-scratching situations you've talked about? Sure. You know, could that change things? You know, 
to go along with Mike White's great recruiting, you know, the development, I think, is another thing, another point you brought up, too, that, you know, an assistant coach is great because you can get the development, you know, a new voice in there can change things. But man, I, I just, I just don't see that being the fix. I think I'm with you. And I go back to the consistency of the problems have been very similar from year to year, even when you had that assistant coaching change, you know, to bring in Al Pinkins. And so for me, you know, I mean, it's kind of wait and see again. I, I think we're at the point where you're talking about next season being kind of sure make or break for Mike White. And I think I go back to when you talk about the consistency of how things have kind of played out within games and within seasons with Mike White, it feels a little bit like when Florida went to the SEC title game in 2015 and 2016 under Jim McElwain, where, you know, fans were excited that, you know, they had kind of turned things around. Florida gets to the big dance, they get to an elite eight, but even in the elite eight, you had some coaching issues to where, you know, or the sweet 16, I guess, against Wisconsin, you had some coaching issues in that game that weren't really competitive uh, the way you should have been against South Carolina in that elite eight game. It feels like since then it's been more of the same to where, you know, it almost feels like fans are at the point where it's like, okay, great. We can get there, but we don't really have a real shot of advancing when we get there. And that's what it felt like when Jim McElwain got there in 2015 and 2016, and you're going against an Alabama it just feels like Florida, okay, they can, they can get into the first weekend. They can maybe win a game. But at what point do we say, hey, this is not a sustainable model to actually start breaking through, getting to those elite eights regularly, getting to the final four, and having a chance to compete for a national championship. And so it feels like a little bit of a mirage in terms of the numbers. And I think that's kind of what I'm getting at with Mike White. I think the numbers can say whatever you want them to say, and especially when you have a basketball program that – traditionally has not had a very good history prior to Lon Kruger and Billy Donovan. It's easy to stack Mike White's numbers up and put a pretty graphic up on Twitter that says, you know, you know, second winning as coach or winning as head, you know, winning win percentage in Florida history and all that, but it doesn't really tell you the story. And I think the story is the trajectory of the program. It's the consistency of the program. It's the expectations that have rightfully been raised at Florida. And if you want to remain a national power in basketball, you know, I think that change has to come sooner than later. I think Mike White will get one last chance to prove it next year. But Blake, looking at the roster, like you said, I don't see any obvious sign that it's suddenly going to click. I think I said this, I think probably two years ago, I think one of the biggest issues that I see under Mike White is I think he does have a good vision of what he wants to do. I think he's a pretty good X's nose coach when you sit there in the, in the, you know, the meeting room with him and you watch him draw it up on the whiteboard. I think that he has trouble because of his constantly changing what they're doing to fit players that it's hard over time to develop consistency within a set system. And, you know, I don't know if he was trying to change that to go back to kind of his roots this season before the Keontae Johnson injury. But to me, it's kind of almost too late at this point. Like, I don't know that he's going to have the time, even if he were to go back to straight up what he ran at LA tech and have that ingrained in players each and every year. I don't know that he's got enough time to make that turnaround. And that's kind of where I'm at with the basketball program, but enough about hoops. Hoops is in the books. I know, I know a lot of people are excited to watch the end of March madness, probably less so now that Florida's out, but Blake, let's talk about spring football too, because the Gators did wrap up with their final scrimmage. We'll take a quick break and we'll be back on the other side, talking a little more spring football. This episode is brought to you by progressive insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. 
You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Introducing the two-way V4, where groundbreaking fuel cell technology meets fresh foam cushioning for the ultimate performance. With fuel cell, each step feels explosive, delivering unparalleled energy return. Paired with fresh foam, experience maximum comfort throughout the game. Its lightweight textile upper offers support and breathability without sacrificing agility. Whether you're hitting the clutch shot or locking down the opposition, the two-way V4 gives you the tools to play at a high level. Learn more and purchase the two-way for yourself at newbalance.com. Welcome back to the Swamp 24-7 podcast. I'm Thomas Goldcamp here with Blake Alderman. Blake, let's talk a little bit of spring football. A little bit different this year. Florida bumped it up a month, and part of that was because, you know, they couldn't be on the road recruiting, which I know has made your job a little bit more difficult trying to gather odds and ends from different recruits. But the idea with that was they move it a month forward. Coaches were able to get to their 2020 cut-ups of the film and all that, get them into the players' hands a little bit quicker. And then you get out there and you have spring early. All of a sudden now you have an extra month really sit in the team meeting rooms, go through the film and kind of work on the things that you, you needed work on from spring. But Blake, I think the reports out of fall camp, and again, a lot of this is secondhand info from us speaking to sources, that kind of thing, because, you know, there was no media availability at all this spring, were that the first two scrimmages, the defense was really way ahead of the offense and, and kind of took it to the offense. The offense was very sloppy. A little bit of a different tone out of the third scrimmage. Dan Mullen made it sound like both sides were a little bit better. That kind of jived with some of our insider reporting on Swamp 24-7 uh, between uh, Bob Redman and, and some other tidbits we've had. Um, but, Blake, are you encouraged by what sounds like the defense having kind of won the spring, or is that more or less what you would expect given you're breaking in a new quarterback? You know, that's what I would always expect. You know, I always feel like even if it's uh... – you know, Under Armour practices, which I know are a little different because it's, you know, your first chance playing with some of these guys. But I feel like in most scrimmages and most spring practices, typically, you know, your defense is always ahead. And and I say that because it, your offense is just kind of limited in what you can do. You know, you can – you're trying to do different things. You know, I know in a lot of the scrimmages that Florida really tried to, you know, kind of condense what – uh, Emory Jones was able to do with his legs. You know, they wanted him to more try to throw the ball in there. So I think that that dynamic taking out of his game, it, it takes a big part of what I believe and what I think a lot of people believe that Florida's offense will try to showcase. You know, sure, it won't just be his legs. You know, Florida has a pretty deep running back room. But either way, I think you're going to see them try to hit the ground a little harder than they have, you know, whereas last season where they really wanted to air it out. So I think that that kind of gives the defense a bit of an advantage. You know, also too, you know, you don't want to hit your quarterback. There are different things that kind of take that just different game type, real game day dynamics out of what you would get in a scrimmage. So, you know, I, I think that it's it's encouraging because you see what Florida's defense was last year that, you know, you hear that the defense is ahead too. But at the same time, man, like the offensive line, like, I mean, most of the reports that came out of the scrimmage, or out of, excuse me, out of spring, were that the offensive line struggled. So, you know, is Florida's front seven just that good? Are they going to really wreak havoc next year for Florida? Or was Florida's offensive line that bad? So I think the big question on offense for me it's just, it's, I mean, it's going to start up front. I feel like this is kind of a wash, rinse, and repeat every year. You know, it's, it's always, yeah. you know, will it be for like Florida up front? But, man, I, I mean, again, here we are. You know, I think that – I think Florida has a good idea of who their starting guys will be. You know, it's kind of been the same consistent names up front for Florida. But, you know, I think that we know what their ceiling is for a lot of these guys. You know, guys like Jean DeLance, you know, 
Stuart Reese, who I think did a little bit more at center this this spring than he did, whereas he was a guard last year. So, you know, will that change things around? Obviously, it puts a guy like Josh Braun in, who I was really high on, and I think a lot of people around the program are very high on. So, you know, there are certain things that I think that this unit can continue to gel. You know, getting there in the film room is going to be good for those guys to kind of work on what they struggled with in the spring. But again, man, I mean, that offensive line is going to have to take Florida a long way because you want to keep Emory Jones. You don't want to have to run him all game, you know, can you? Probably. I mean, will that be sustainable for Florida? Probably not. You know, Florida, I think, has pretty good answers for a lot of their position groups around that, but offensive line on offense, it's still the big question mark, man. Yeah, I think it is, and I think if you listen to Dan Mullen, I think they feel comfortable with a couple guys. You know, Florida was also banged up a good bit during the spring. Dan Mullen said they only finished with 10 scholarship guys, but they feel good about the left side of the line, which they had Richard Guraj at left tackle. and then Which was kind of the same guard. case last year, too. You know, I mean, right. that's, it's another reoccurring theme with those guys. Right. And I think you, you pointed it out. You know, Jean DeLance struggled. Stuart Reese struggled. And they've moved Reese around quite a bit. I think Reese ended up actually playing left tackle a little bit in the final scrimmage, which that's, that's not something you want if you're Florida no. fans. I just, you know, great guy, uh, super nice, and I think very, very high football IQ, but – I don't think he has the athleticism to play left tackle. So I, I think to your point, I think Florida experimented with a lot of things. I think in spring it was, like you said, really trying to force Emory Jones to do a lot of things that maybe he's a little less comfortable with. That way they see, you know, when you go through a month and 15 practices, if he's still not getting it after the 15th practice, okay, in the off season, you say, Hey, we're not doing that. We got to do something different. We got to draw it up different. And then in fall camp, you can work towards that. Uh, but to your point, I think disappointment for me coming out of spring on the O-line we had talked about it going in. If, if you were going to feel good about the O-line coming out of spring ball or going into next year, I thought there were four younger guys that really had to, to step up and take a real, real chance at, at least breaking into a starting position. And those four guys were Ethan White, who that's one, doing pretty well. Josh Braun, that's two, you're doing pretty well. But I think the other two were Michael Tarquin at tackle, and we didn't hear a whole lot out of him. Doesn't sound like he really made a real push at that at that tackle spot where DeLance is. And then the other guy was center, Kingsley Aguacan. And I think, uh, you know, Kingsley, I think Jury's still out a little bit on if he can be the third guy to step up into a starting role. You know, having heard what we did out of spring ball, I think there's still a good chance that he could potentially push for that job in fall camp. Um, but the bottom line is, you know, we didn't hear enough of some of the younger guys even pushing – you know, into those key backup roles. And, you know, Dan Mullen said they feel okay with the five they have right now. But again, he said he feels comfortable with the left side. Didn't really say he wasn't comfortable with the right side, but he made it very clear he felt better about we'll the left side. We'll leave that one up to interpretation. Right. So I think that, you know, the issue is, like you said, we know the ceiling on some of these guys. And so if you can't replace them with more talented players, you're capping the upside of the offense. And I think, uh, I guess we should talk about the flip side. You know, spring ball, you never quite know. You know, maybe your offensive line is coming along better than you think, but they're just going up against a really good D-line. That is one of the things we thought could be a real strength for Florida up front. You know, you return Zach Carter. Your Jeremiah Moon didn't practice this spring, but he's another guy with, that adds some depth. Chris Bogle, Andrew Chatfield, Brenton Cox. And then I think what really helped Florida is, I know something that we talked about a little before the podcast, those two transfers. And Blake, what, what kind of impact do you think those two will have, not just on the starting lineup, but the – shoring out kind of the depth of the unit overall you know I think depth is the biggest thing and I think that 
it keeps you from just having some of those really young guys. You know, we think Javon Dexter is going to be great. You know, we think that he's, you know, going to be a really great player for Florida. He's got the size. He's getting, he got a spring this year that where he didn't get last year to where he could work on a lot of those things because coming out of high school, he had the size, you know, he was athletic, you know, his all get out, you know, he had, he could do a lot of things, but he technique wise, you know, he was, he was very raw coming from being a basketball guy. And I mean, you could even, if you follow him on Twitter, you could see him post some of his clips from like the, you know, the Nike opening at a high school. He's like, man, I didn't even know what I was doing there, you know? So, and he's, you know, just such a a physical and, and and sure. And he had, you know, really good Nike opening camp too, because you see him just like bulldozing these guys back there, but there's just no technique, you know, and obviously that was a long time ago. So, I mean, he's, he's worked a lot through, through since then, but what I'm getting at is it keeps you from having some of those younger guys. You get that experience from a guy like Antonio Shelton um, and Daquan Newkirk guys that are, you know, 300 pounds themselves that can push the pocket, can do things that were Florida really struggled last year. In the sense of, you know, if you take out some of the guys that Florida had last year, they just didn't have that that size. And, you know, in the SEC, you know, you need to be physical there. You need those guys. You know, even a guy like Desmond Watson who will come along later in the program, you need big guys like that. They're going to continue to push the pocket. They're not going to get you pushed back. They're not going to get those guys up front for Florida push back and the linebackers opening up gaps and all these things that are, I guess, a trickle-down effect. So I think that them, first and foremost, having – the experience is great, you know, not only on the field to kind of coach some of these guys up as they go um, off the field in the film room, but you've also just got, uh, you know, two guys that were, you know, guys that, you know, could, I don't know where in the grand scheme of, you know, NFL draft, but, you know, these were guys that are more likely, whether it's undrafted free agent, some kind of draft pick, they were guys that were going to find an NFL roster if they didn't choose to take that six year of eligibility. So now you've got guys that are coming back. They're kind of working to kind of improve their stock and all these kind of things. Um, you know, so I, I think that, you know, there are really just, I can't sit there and think of any negativity, any negative reasons for bringing those guys in there because there's just so much that those guys bring in there, um, from an experience, you know, from a playing ability, from the size they bring. So, you know, it, it does help kind of branch the, where Florida struggled getting some of those guys on the defensive line, recruiting them out of high school, you know, earlier on when Dan Mullen was there. So this is kind of that bridge that where Florida may not have to do this, you know, every other year anymore, or have those questions of interior defensive line, you know, sure it is. And, you know, I think where you look at how Florida has aggressively tried to add more guys on the defensive line, that's to kind of shore up some more of that depth, continue to get those guys developed along, but you won't have some of those years where you look at it. It's like, man, we're really about to start a freshman out here or a red shirt freshman. So I don't think that, you know, that I think that this is the year to where you can kind of see the light of the end of the tunnel for where Florida has struggled on that defensive line from a depth, from a talent, from all those kind of things. So I think you can see that upswing from though. And I think that those guys are kind of the, uh, you know, the, the cherry on top for that, you know, of just all those questions and concerns. You mentioned trickle down effect too. And I think that's interesting because one group that it sounds like really stood out this spring was the linebackers. And on paper, we weren't really sold on those guys. You know, obviously we thought uh, Mahmoud Diabate could come along and, and really take a next step now that he's been there for a year. Mari Bernie, not quite as sold on. Ventrell Miller, like we've talked about, has kind of an athletic ceiling to him. Um, but I think those guys really got rave reviews out of the spring. And, you know, in talking to some of those guys, I think the reason for it is I think the defensive line took a significant step forward and was really stout up front, allowed the linebackers to kind of crash down in the gaps. So, to me, I, I came out of spring feeling pretty good about the front seven. Again, you never know because we're basing a lot of this on word of mouth from, from Dan Mullen and players, and obviously everybody's positive in the spring. You know, Everybody's sure. zero and zero. Nobody's losing games. Um, and you don't know. You don't know, if, is your O-line better than you think? Is it worse than you think? Uh, but I do think the linebackers were real positive. 
I think, uh, you know, talking defense, if there's one area you come out of spring still concerned about, it's got to be the secondary. You know, Florida was really, really young going in. You had basically Kyer Elam, Trey Dean, and Jaden Hill. And really, that's pretty much it. I mean, Rashad, Rashad Torrance, Torrance, I guess, kind of. He played some last year. And if you listen to Dan Mullen coming out of spring, he said they feel comfortable with four or five guys. And I think those four, you know, would probably be the four you'd circle. And he sounded pretty concerned that they need other guys to step up and fill in that five, six, seven, you know, in the rotation. Because even if Florida doesn't rotate as much as they do, one injury and all of a sudden you've got a true freshman out there. So that stands out as a little bit of a concern to me. Um, I think, Blake, the other, the other big kind of concern coming out of spring is Emory Jones. You know, we talked about the offense maybe being pretty inconsistent, especially in those first two scrimmages. A lot of that had to do with, and again, Florida forced them to do it, but a lot of it had to do with Emory Jones not really being great as a passer. And I think one of the consistent issues we heard of in talking to sources was arm angle. You know, a lot of passes tended to get batted down. Uh, maybe he doesn't loft it quite as much over some of those underneath defenders, linebackers sitting back in zone. There were a lot of batted passes this spring. I think Emory Jones, from, a, from an arm talent standpoint, certainly can throw the ball. And Dan Mullen even talked about this spring saying they'll, they'll be able to take more deep shots this year because he can kind of push it down the field a little bit more. The issue is going to be, can he make all those timing, those rhythm throws yeah. like Kyle Trask? And I think – You want those touch passes. That's what made Kyle passes. Trask so great. It's exactly what made Kyle Trask so great. And, and you know, it, it's his first full-time spring as the starter, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, so that's going to come along. And I think Dan Mullen talked about that a little bit as they wrapped up spring. You know, he, he did start to get better at that as spring went on. And I think that third scrimmage, you kind of saw that a little bit. But some of that's going to have to happen in live games too. So I think, you know, Emory Jones, he's going to be a little bit of a work in progress. I don't think fans should expect the finished pro product right out of the gates. You know, it's, it, it better be pretty good, though, and you better have a good plan because you got Alabama coming up pretty early. Um, but, Blake, one other final comment that Dan Mullen made, and I, I want to get your thoughts on this, that stuck out to me was he said straight up they're not going to have some of the household names, some of the superstar players that they did last year in a Kyle Pitts, a Kyle Trask, Kadarius Toney. And so what that really means is that they've got to rely on their depth a lot more and they've got to rely on attention to detail. When I hear that, I think, okay, that's fine, but no team's going to be perfect on attention to detail. To me, that worries me a little bit on the offensive side of the ball. And again, I don't know how worried I should be given Dan Mullen's track record offensively, but to me, that statement came across as we're not quite as talented as we were last year, so we can't afford to make as many mistakes. And for me, that, that put me on the cautious end of things a little bit, especially hearing how the offense struggled a little bit during the spring. You know, I think it should whenever you hear things like that and you kind of look at some of those key playmaker type of guys. I mean, you lose a guy like Kyle Pitts, you lose a quarterback like Kyle Trask in the year he had last year, and a guy that was that do-it-all type of gadget guy like Kadarius Tony. I mean, those are three major contributors for Florida's offense last year that are no longer there. You know, so here's my thing, though. I agree with you whenever you say that Dan Mullen is a great game day coach, he's a great X's and O's coach, that does make the window smaller if your talent just isn't quite there. I absolutely agree with you all there. But I, I think that you can see it gives a chance for some of these guys that maybe aren't the household names. You know, an Xavier Henderson. You know, I think Florida has a really deep running back room. You know, could a Naquan Wright, you know, a Demarcus Bowman, who, you know, if he can work his way into the mix more after, you know, kind of being held out in the spring and not being full go in the spring. But that's a number two, I think, running back out of his high school class, a five-star type of player. You know, 
a collection of running backs there. You know, Emory Jones, I think, you know, can his, can his legs, you know, can he showcase more of those in a game? Does that open things up in the passing game? Does, you know, just the, the constant having to game plan around what is this guy going to do being that true dual, dual threat type of guy? I think that those kind of things can – it can make different dynamics in your offense. And I think that Dan Mullen – I mean, you give Dan Mullen some dynamics. I mean, he's going to have he's going to have a you know a play day with that. So I think that I'm interested now to see who some of those guys are. They're going to be to step up because I think that that's challenging his team to find those guys that you know we're not as talented last year. So which one of you guys is going to be the one to step up? And I think that that's his way of kind of coaching those guys up. Maybe I'm reading into it a little bit wrong. I do think that there are some talented guys that Florida lost last year that are going to be hard to replace. And I think that Florida's offense last year, with how talented they were, how good the offense was as a unit, you lose those guys, man. Like, I mean, you, you just don't have any of those guys that have – you've seen the body of work enough of them to know that, you know, oh, Florida's going to be okay there. But I think it does challenge those guys to step up and become maybe not those guys because it's going to be hard to replace those guys, like I said, but at least contribute enough – um, be productive enough to where you can win some games for us. Like, I think that's a great point. It's a, that's it, a good topic for a podcast in the future, which of those younger guys will step up. So we'll definitely have to work that into our off season plan at some point, maybe very soon. I know you've got some recruiting stuff that we want to get to on the next episode, uh, but that'll do it for this episode of the podcast guys. We apologize for the delay. I've been under the weather a little bit for the last week or two. I had to go get COVID Me too, tested. I had the flu. I had to get COVID tested last week. Came back negative. So good news there. Knock on wood. And hopefully, mm-hmm. uh, Hopefully I'll continue to feel a little bit better, but uh, thanks for tuning into this episode of the podcast guys. If you're liking the podcast on YouTube, I know, like I said, we haven't been as active on there lately, but be sure to hit the like button on the video and subscribe to the channel for more content from small 24 seven. Thanks for tuning in. It's the UEFA Champions League on Paramount+. Plus. Europe's top club soccer tournament. Champions versus champions. The best teams facing off in the knockout rounds. Magnificent! And it all takes place. While you're filling out financial reports at work. In the middle of your day. In the middle of your week. So use that second screen. Call in sick. Do whatever you gotta do to tune in Tuesdays and Wednesdays. Nobody watches the UEFA Champions League like us. Stream every match live exclusively on Paramount+. Plus.